This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode. Got a great guest for you today. He's a mobile home park owner operator, also does self storage, raises tons of money, got lots of experience. Really excited to have him today. One of the more well known guys in the industry. Please help me welcome my guest, Ryan Smith. Ryan, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, good to, good to get you on the show finally. I know I've, you've been on some other podcasts and heard you present at Seco, had a great presentation there and lots of other places. But for those of our audience that do not know you, maybe give us a little bit more about your background and then how you got an MHP and maybe what you guys are doing today. Yeah, so background, um, I've been in the mobile home park um, and or self-storage business for coming up on 20 years. Um, you know, how I got into this space, it, it's a I'm an entrepreneur. I've never had a W-2, so it's kind of been one thing leading to the next to the next. But in short, um, you know, came from a real estate family, um, single family residential. Ended up, um, I was a coder, liked to write software. So I wrote a software program for my dad to help him do his analytics. I thought it would be a fun kind of, uh, kind of practicum. And so I, anyway, I built this software application that my dad used for his business, turned it into a business that actually made quite a bit of money. And then took that money, parlayed it into single-family residential with my wife, who's a business partner in our business. Um, we bought about 30, I'd say, homes, single-family homes in our early 20s. Because it's what my family did. It's what her family did. We realized pretty quickly it wasn't scalable. Um, and so we, we started looking at something that was more scalable, generated income, had capital appreciation. And then we were looking for something called cycle resiliency, non-correlation, or low data. And landed on this concept of mobile home parks as a as a potential um, avenue. Um, bought one, it turned out okay. Bought two, turned out good. And three, four, five, six, seven hundred later, and you know here we are. Uh, so it's been it's been a lot of fun. Well, that's great. Yeah, I think a lot of people in the industry came out of the home flipping business, you know, or the single family rental business for the same reason, right? It's scale. And I, I I did it. I started in single family. I had a day job, but I did it on the side, and I realized. You know, once you got, I think the number was 10 at that time, once you got to 10, you couldn't really get good loans. It's just like, uh, what do you mean? Like, no, you need to have 30% down. You don't fit the box. Like, okay, well, in addition to how do I manage a hundred rooftops? So I thought, well, I'll go look at, maybe I can get two 50 unit apartment complexes. That'd be easier to manage than a hundred homes. Well, guess what? Other people figured that out. So there was a lot of efficiencies in apartments. So the cap rates were lower, right? The, the yield was compressed because of the competitiveness. Like, oh, crap. So similar thing. Like, man, I'm, I'm making high yield in single family, but I can only own so many and flipping homes is for the birds, I thought. So like, well, if I, I got to get something that I can maintain, you know, quote, passive income. Obviously, <laughs> MHP is not that passive, depending on the project. But um, yeah, Thanks. got in got in the space same way, man. And I've uh, been here since, right? And love it. So that's great. So where, what kind of stuff are you guys buying now? I know I've, I see your stuff online, followed you guys for a long time. You're buying a combination of storage and MH. It seems like you're buying top tier assets and top tier markets. Is that, is that kind of the, the plan and in, in, in the, in the business model at this point? It is. I think, you know, everybody has their path 
um, and everybody's on a on a path, you know, to an eventual end. But I think, you know, starting with the end in mind, I think the the goal of owning quality, well located real estate and and a good market, um, and then never selling, I think, generally turns out fairly well. So we're, you know, we, we like quality markets. So we just bought a close on a storage facility a couple of months ago in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, about a half mile to a mile from Amazon's HQ2, Pentagon, you know, is right up the road, Reagan International. So really well, you know, well located. Um, so we also bought a mobile home park uh, earlier in the summer, 209 space park in the DC Metro, uh, which we like a lot. Um, and just bought a, a storage facility last month in Houston, Texas. So, um, so to your point, we, we, the number one question we ask on anything we buy is, is it moated? Is there a distinct barrier to entry? Uh, is there something unique about that property that allows us to compete and protect our capital? So, um, you know, generally speaking, well-located real estate is it tends to be moated. Yeah, and by moat, just for our other listeners, moated, you're talking about a moat, like a barrier to entry or protection against competition and, and you're kind of insulated from risk to some degree. Correct. Correct. So, and I know we've talked previous as well that you know, your attitude is more risk adjusted returns, risk, not necessarily afraid of risk, but, a, but an appreciation for risk and, and an aversion to undo risk. How does that compare to what you're seeing in the marketplace? I mean, what I'm, I'm seeing cap rates at prices, I can't believe I'm seeing people buy stuff that I mean, I've been off by 50% on bids. I'm, like, I don't, I'm not even going after stuff right now that's call for offers because I'm like, it's not worth the energy to be disappointed by half um, the greater fool has more money or less sense than, than I do. So are you, what are you seeing and, and how are you, you know, avoiding that sort of, those sort of problems if those, if, if those are the problems you're seeing in the marketplace? Yeah. So I, I guess as a general statement, I'm, I'm saying it, it seems to me that there's a lot of loose and fast going on um, in to a degree on both sides of the table. Um, I see operators taking quite a bit of risk, knowingly or unknowingly, um, and I see capital um, LPs taking quite a bit of risk in what they demand of their operators, and um, knowingly or unknowingly. And so, uh, typically, the value chain, as I've seen it lately, is you have uh, a base or a pool of LPs that um, have been LPs in this space, looking in this space for maybe the last one to three years. They have a presumption of the way you know, it works or the way they would like it to work. And, you know, then you have newer operators that need to raise capital. And so in many cases, they capitulate to kind of the whims of the market. And I can be specific as to what I mean by this, but as a general statement, you have, I, I think LP is taking quite a bit of risk in the way that they um, look to invest at times. And you have operators, many of which are newer um, kind of acquiescing to those demands in order to raise the capital in order to buy the deals and and so you know as a as a general theme um you know the capital raising process is quite verbose a lot of promises um you know lofty language forward-looking projections uh, to raise capital things that you know um, i would say we we do not do performer models we, we do not uh, use those for marketing purposes um and then you on from a from a model standpoint you're seeing you know, the, basically the, the promise of yield as kind of the marketing book, so to speak, you know, cash flow, um, replace your income, quit your job, you know, go from active to passive. And so what those operators generally do is they go downstream in quality to get yield. So more and more rural, heavier and heavier infill, uh, more and more hair set it up. And so 
Um, you know, like I think we've talked about before, I, I don't have a dog in the fight, so I'm not predicting an outcome. I, I think if everything continues as it is in a, in a linear basis, I think, uh, or linear fashion, I think things will turn out quite fine. But if anything were to change or take a hard right turn, uh, that, that model may not prove uh, as fruitful. And who knows? I don't have a dog in the fight either way. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's definitely more risk in general on the, I'd agree with you, on parks that are rural or infill. I mean, one thing we've seen in the last year, I just, we just bought a park um, in, in rural Kansas for the purposes of moving all the vacant homes to a park in Kansas City Metro, used yeah. homes, because we have a park here. And my allocation, I ended up getting an allocation for 2022 of 11 homes from True. And I'd bought dozens of homes from them the last couple of years. And I can only get 11 and I got zero in the last eight months. So my ability to infill with new homes outside of my control was impacted. So that part, that park in particular, the infill projections are off, right? Had the park been 99% occupied, it would have been, you know, wouldn't have been an issue now. So there's, there's definitely additional risk palette risk factors on deals that are, um, that are just have more hair on them and, you know, rural market. Yeah. If you lose an employer, it hurts. So you can get the yield. Now that, that deal is that I've described, you know, we had a yield expectation of 30% IRR, right? So you don't get that on a deal unless you buy it at a stupid low price, right? On a deal that's 99% occupied. So it's inherent with risk. And because we can still infill it and we just, we're, we just got 10 homes, we're going to move in there right now, use homes, it'll be, it, it will be full here in the next five, six months. Cause I, I did get the allocation for some of the other ones. So I will be full in six months. So I'll be six months behind but it's not that big a pain point on the on the total yield because my valuation doubling and it's still going to, and, and, and in the meantime, cap rates have compressed. So I'd probably end up doing better because of those other macroeconomic factors outside of my control. But um, definitely with you there. And I, I see it happen to performers all the time. I see it on clients too. I'm like, guys, and one client in particular, they bought an infill park and they're like, we're going to put in 30 homes in the first six months and then we're going to do a cash out refinance and at 80% LTV. And I said, which bank gave you that approval? They go, well, we haven't done it yet. We haven't gone to the banks yet. I said, well, I can't get that loan yes. in six, in six right. months at ADL TV cash out with no seasoning if I pull off the 30 infill in six months. And I've got more experience, better banking relationships, and a better balance sheet than you do. And I'm 15 years older than you, which also helps to some degree. So, guys, are you going to do your paperwork? I'll do your paperwork. But you want me to give you some advice? You need to change your pro forma because this is not going to happen. And, yeah. and, they, and then like in this instance, they appreciated it. Right. But that, that's the kind of stuff I'm seeing. What do you, what do you, not all the time, but so what are you, or what are you doing in the marketplace when you see that? Are you, you know, in some degree advising mentees or, but or, or on your own portfolio, or are you just buying slower, being more selective, um, waiting for others to fail and then you can buy on them from the bank. So what's the, what's the one, two, five year vision on those? Yeah, so I guess in taking it in part, and actually, I guess three three different things, and this may not be uh, sequential to the question, but first, to your to your point on an eighty percent LTV, you know, there's also the question uh, just because you can get it, should you? All right, what is what is optimal? Um, so our model on that is sixty five percent. We we acquire at fifty percent loan to cost because again, going back to what we kind of talked about at the at the top. You know, if you have an incredibly well-located asset and a really good market long-term, again, and you hold it for time, beta, then things will turn out quite well over, you know, will likely turn out well over time. The key is to not lose it. 
one of the number one reasons you lose a property is too much debt or the, or the wrong type of debt. So we, when we acquire a property, we're generally 50% loan to cost at acquisition. We can certainly get much higher than that. We choose 50%. So I'm not, and then when we refinance and we cash out refis, we generally go to 65% um, from, a, from a margin of safety or risk standpoint. So it, I just, I offer that just to say, just because you can get it, you may or not, um, you may or may not should, um, doesn't make it, I guess, right. Um, and then second, I guess, to your question, um, I do advise people, there's uh, three operators and, and actually several different asset classes that I, I do monthly calls with at scheduled times. And we talk through uh, questions pertaining to operations, capital raising, you know, work-life balance, um, faith, um, what, you know, it's, it's an amalgamation of a number of things. Um, I really enjoy it. Um, and then there's also the ad hoc. I, I have friends of mine that I don't do that with necessarily. They've never asked. Um, I'll, you know, might be booking on my calendar after this one. Um, but <laughs> but um, there's, a, there's a friend of mine in particular. He has a fund that he um, last year brought to market. And I called him and said, what are you doing? You know, I just called him out of the blue. I said, buddy, you know, love you. But what are you doing? Knock it off. And, and gave him feedback. And, and he took it, uh, which, is, which is good. Um, and then I guess the third part was to your question on the, you know, I think it was two to five year plan. Um, but basically, I, I think the, the kind of the gist of the question is how do we compete today that, without necessarily being the, um, the, the highest price offer? And maybe, if, if, and if that's not it, um, but I, I guess it, it, if, that's, if that was the question, I think, um, so two of the last deals we bought, um, one in DC Metro, it's a mobile home park, 209 spaces, and then a 900 unit storage facility in Alexandria, Virginia. Both of those were, were not um, widely marketed. Those were limited distribution deals. We received them. Um, we were in, um, we were included in the process through reputation um, in, in those specific markets. In both of those deals, we were, um, we won the deals and we were not the highest price offer. Um, I think one, we were lower than the highest by more than a million dollars. And I think the other one was about a million dollars lower. Uh, and we won. Um, and, and so in one of the deals on the mobile home park in the DC Metro, um, another group was newer. There were five groups that saw the deal. We were one of the five. I think we finished third in the, you know, in the, in the bidding or the offer. And we won the deal because the seller, the seller knew um, the seller of another park we had bought about 10 miles up the road. Um, and uh, the other group that offered the most was um, less proven. And so they, they went with um, surety to close, you know, um, and I'm, I'm assuming that this is the case, but I, I believe they went with the likelihood of closing, the unlikelihood of retrading the deal, which we generally don't retrade unless there's some gross um, material defect in the information that was provided. Um, so anyway, we, we, we try to choose the deals that um, we don't necessarily um, have to win by being the highest price uh, offer on and reputational carry. We certainly lose a lot of offers, as, as I'm sure you do too. You know, right. we, we make offers all the time and we're okay with losing them. Um, we just kind of pick our battles and, um, you know, and, and move on. And then at the end of the day, we're, you know, we're national in scope. We're across two different asset classes and we're trying to buy two to four deals a year. You know, we're not trying to buy a deal a week. So um, it allows us to be kind of picky and choosy and patient. 
Okay, that's, that's definitely a good approach. So when you've got 50% leverage on the acquisition, how, that obviously has to impact your, your yield to make it you know, less in the short run, at least because you don't have the, you don't have the leverage. I mean, we, we all learn, you know, real estate finance 101 leverage is part of what allows real estate to be superior yield to stock market, for example. So how do you balance that? I mean, obviously there's, there's less risk with less, with less debt. Um, how do you balance that? And, and why, if, if 50 is good, why refinance at 65 instead of refinance at 50 also? That's a good question. So I, I think in, in part, um, the first part of your question, you know, I, I think one of our, one of the competitive advantages we've tried to build, I've been pretty proactive over the last five, six years is, um, you know, I, I figured that kind of the path of cap compression would likely continue. I didn't, I'm not saying I thought I saw that where it is today. So, don't, you know, I don't have that kind of crystal ball, but, um, but I thought it would likely yield would be compressed, um, all things being considered and all things being equal. So, you know, my, my approach was to, um, you know, in short, create a, a base of capital that saw the world the way that I did, which is um, not necessarily deploying capital based on the highest promised return, short-term return. Um, because going back to kind of what I said earlier, the thing I don't like about that is in order to accomplish that task, it's going to push me to take pretty significant risk uh, in the model, where if anything changes economically, um, you know, I could be holding a bag that I, I don't want to be holding. Um, and so we've been pretty proactive in communicating with investors that yield is going down, you know, and to expect it. And, um, and at the end of the day, as an operator who then, you know, creates opportunities to invest through our funds, you know, it's, it's saying, here's what we do, here's the risk we're taking, here's the team, um, here's, you know, track record, all of that. But at the end of the day, this is what we're offering and it's, it's a market and, um, if people want to take more risk or chase more yield, there's other options. But if somebody wants, um, you know, maybe a more conservative approach, then they may consider us. And, and we have not, uh, we have not struggled at all uh, with our capital raise with that kind of approach. Um, if anything, it's it's accelerated a little bit. Um, so that, I, I would just say we picked the path we wanted to go down, and thankfully other people came with us. <laughs> Probably get a, a, a shorter summation. Um, and then on the on the second part of the question, um, I, I forget that. Sorry, I, can you remind me what that was? Well, I think just you know, just long long term view and how it impacts. Well, in this case, you know, how how do you temper your yield and how do you you know how's that working from a business plan perspective? Because it, it's to it, me, it's like if I was curious, you know, if if, if it's fifty percent leverage at the beginning, why is sixty five okay later? You almost think it'd be the opposite, you know, sixty five fifty or sixty five sixty five, because most you know most time banks will not will give you you know. 80% on the acquisition and, and less, you know, 65, for example, on the refinance, obviously the 50 on the acquisition is going to make it easier to get approved for acquisition loans. But if presumably the value goes up over time. So if you also increase the leverage percentage, you're really going to add a ton of debt um, at the refinance timeline. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, kind of what I, I would say 65% is somewhat arbitrary. Why not 66? Why not 64? You know, um, but to your point, um, you know, 70, 75 percent, depending on you know where we are in the economic cycle and what the environment is like, is is probably the theoretical maximum that you can re, you know cash out in most cases. Maybe you can go to 80 in some cases, but um, but then there's back to the case of should you. So as, and this is a very rough um, kind of metric, but 
generally speaking, your break-even occupancy is five to 10 um, points higher than your leverage rate. So, and it, it this varies. So if, if you're 50% at acquisition, 50% loan cost at acquisition, you need, you call it 60% occupancy to break even. It's an uh, economic occupancy to break even. So you have a very large margin of safety, right? We, we look at, um, you know, you look at the, the Great Recession and occupancy and storage, for example, was about 88% nationally. So um, if I need 60 and 80, I've got a wide margin of safety, which I want. And then as you operate the asset to a degree, it's not, um, you're not taking away all risk, but certainly five years in the future, especially if you're doing forced, you know, kind of forced appreciation and doing CapEx, you, you've likely de-risked the asset to some degree. So in our in our belief, it's okay to maybe go a little bit higher, you know, because uh, you know, if anything material with the model, it would likely avail itself in the first five years. So um, we're okay with maybe going a little bit higher leverage, um, 60, 65 at, at year five, which then using that same metric would take break-even occupancy to 70, 75%, which is still a pretty significant margin of safety um, set against the historical averages. So. Now, if you get in the 80% range, now you're 85, you know, you know, maybe upper 80s, not, and now you're you're bumping up against, you know, um, you know uh, I'll say historicity and, and the potential of maybe having lost that asset at certain times historically. So, and, and we don't want that. Okay, well, that makes sense. That's thanks for the analysis there. Thinking about the cap rate trends, you've seen them compress the last several years. What do you predict, um, and then where do you think we're at in the you know the overall market cycle for this asset class? I mean, consolidation is clearly happening to some degree. How many more years do you think it is before you know you can go out and buy a single fifty-unit space in a decent town with decent condition? Is it we're going to have that forever, or are those going to all be taken? Right now, the the, the four hundred parks and the two hundred parks are already getting gobbled up pretty quickly. Hundred is already in process. Are we going to get to over fifty-two and and then maybe even lower. What's, what's your view on where we're at, and where we're going? No, I, I don't think so. Um, you, you know, because the presumption to a degree, um, um, you know, the, the presumption is that all the current models will continue to work in perpetuity as they are now. Um, and I, I think um, that's unlikely to be the case. Um, so I think there will be um, models that shake out possibly uh, and are disrupted, which then create new opportunity and reset things. But um, certainly, I think I think mobile home parks and storage, both, both asset classes, will continue to con- consolidate, and they are and they have been. I think will continue. But I don't. I think there's a lot of opportunity. It will continue to be opportunity for you know at least the next decade and beyond. Um, as far as cap rates, I don't. I don't know. Um, obviously, what's going to happen with them, but. To a degree, I don't have necessarily a dog in the fight um, because it's it's kind of Newtonian in a sense. Um, you have more of something worth less or less of something worth, worth more, um, you know, in that if um, if inflation does in fact, you know, stay where it is or elevate on a, on a sustained basis. And I if I have what I would define as a fundamentally good business, which is a business you can pass inflation on to the customer. You know, if you can't pass inflation on, you've got a bad business, um, mm-hmm. you know, whether you know it or not, uh, that would be a bad business. So if I can pass it on to the customer, then my NOI will take off probably, you know, um, significantly more than I projected it um, to, which I mean, case in point, 2021, I mean, our, our revenue growth was unbelievable this year. Um, so the point is you can, you know, you can argue, well, 
if, if inflation rises and interest rates rise, cap rates might rise, but if I can pass it on to the customer, so will my NOI. So I have more of something, maybe valued at a lower multiple, i.e. a higher cap rate. But the net effect to value is uh, shouldn't be overly significant. Um, the interesting thing, and I, I, you know, I, I was interested about a year and a half ago when Powell made the comment that I think they were going to consider inflation in the aggregate. That was an interesting comment to me because it historically, you know, there's this statement in, in real estate, and you know, everybody's probably heard it you know, 100, fold, uh, 100 times over, where you know, real estate's like a ship in the harbor. When inflation comes in, the ship rises, and, you know, you can pass on the customer. But the unlike the ship in the harbor, the interesting thing is if inflation comes and you pass it on to the customer, when inflation moderates, rail rates don't typically go back down. Right. So now the ship is staying suspended in air. You know, the, the water goes out and the, the ship doesn't move. Um, but the interesting thing is historically, you know, when inflation comes like in the late 70s, and my business partner Brian was active in that time and um, loved that time in real estate. It's one of his favorite times of the last, you know, 40, 50 years. He's been in business 52 years. One of his favorite times was the in the, the late 70s because of inflation. Because in his in his comment was, you know, we passed on to the customer revenue, revenue grew, net operating income grew. And then when it moderated, customers continued to pay that that rate that was fueled by inflation. But then obviously as inflation moderates, interest rates come down, cap rates tend to compress, and now you monetize, you know, now you have an elevated NOI and right. an cap rate. It's 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 uh, it's multiplicative. So anyway, yeah. it's so um so that's a, a good that's a good positive spin on inflation. It's just hey, ride it out, wait, and then you're going to get the benefit when inflation decreases. Yeah, there's a point. I mean, it's like you know everything in moderation, including moderation. I think Trisha Yearwood said years ago, which I, I love that comment. But you know, there's um, you know, there's a point where inflation could be bad for the consumer, and I, obviously we're all sure. worried about that. But inflation in, in moderate amounts is I, I don't think a bad thing at all. I think it can be quite useful. Interesting. No, that's I never heard it put quite that way. That's interesting approach to inflation. Uh, generally, it's just like inflation bad, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, well, it is. It, it, it might be if you can't pass it on, then it is bad. Um, and that's where kind of going back to uh, to tie it back to something I think we talked about on this um, in this discussion is when I when I reference the risk people are taking to me. And this is my presumption, and I'm, I might be wrong, but my presumption is that you know, not all mobile home parks might be able to pass inflation on the same. Not all locations, not all qualities. So, to me, if inflation is something that is here and growing, I, I think quality, well located, um, higher, you know, higher quality parks will be able to pass it on far easier than the other end of the spectrum to the extreme. So, you know, um, I don't think inflation's um, you know, a bad thing for, for our model, but, um, but it may be challenging for others. Yeah, that make, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, the heavy, in the heavier lift projects that are more risk on infill, also if, if inflation goes up, your consumers, your buyers have less purchasing power. You can't just push the rents on vacant lots. You got to keep your rates reasonable and or lower in order to get the occupancy. Uh, right. So no, I definitely can see that. That's yeah. good stuff. 
what, what are tips, Ryan, anything else before we go? Any tips or tricks you want to share? Or if not, you can tell us where you can find you, but um, don't want to take all your time, but this is good stuff. And if, definitely you don't want to cut you off if you got anything else you want to share. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the, you know, we've kind of talked or kind of hinted around it. I, I think that, you know, I, I think the biggest thing is for investors and operators to understand the value of a dollar. Um, and there's a cap rate component to that discussion. Um, but, you know, you know, there's, I, I, I'll start by, I guess, really quickly, it's very hard. And I think a lot of your investors who are um, looking for passive income, they probably already know this quite well, but it's nearly impossible to earn yourself wealthy through cash flow. Right. That's, that's the problem most Americans have is, you know, work hard, get a job, save your money. And then 30 years later, you're, you know, where's the beef? And there's no beef, you know, and, um, because it, it, the entire tax regime is, is really set against you being successful, trying to earn yourself wealthy through income. So the, really the focus, in, in our opinion, is to create wealth, um, whatever society thinks of wealth. Um, you know, they might, society may love it or hate it, um, but you know, I can then choose to do with my wealth things that then you know, benefit my community. And, and um, anyway, but the, the point being is, I, you know, from wealth, you can create all the income you need, but it's very, very difficult to earn yourself wealthy. And so understanding the value of a dollar is incredibly important. So comparatively, you know, a dollar of earned wages is, you know, call it 50 cents saved or whatever your allocation is. But in our business, you know, a dollar of NOI every month. So I'm in the business of finding dollars. It's what I consider my job is I find dollars. So if I find a dollar a month of net operating income on a property, that's a five cap asset. And um, you know, whether it's higher or lower, let's say five cap asset, a dollar a month is 12 a year divided by 0.05 is $240. So I'm in the business of finding $240. Most Americans work for 50 cent dollars, right? So it's, it's a world apart, a uh, world apart. Now, this is kind of where there's, I guess, two quick points is, if, if I was in a 10, a 10 cap business trying to find 10 cap or better, which you see often in the industry, we're, we're buying, we're buying 10 caps. It's like, right. in my opinion, that's, you know, that, that might not be a positive thing based on what I'm saying here, a 10 cap, uh, a 10 cap, a sustained 10 cap asset, a dollar a month, 12 a year divided by 0.1 is $120. So that person's in the business of finding $120 dollars. I'm in the business of finding $240 dollars my dollar is worth twice as much as that dollar. Um, and so on a net net basis, I think I might be in some cases taking the same or less risk than they are to make quite a bit more on a, on a, and on a risk adjusted basis coming ahead. Now, lastly, for the, for the person on the, on the podcast who's more analytical and you know, like kind of schemas and schematics, you can take just really roughly what I laid out and work backwards. So let's say your goal is to create roughly um, ballpark, I'm just gonna, let's say your, your goal is to create $10 million of net worth for yourself, more than what you have now. So at a five cap, assuming you're buying five cap, sustained five cap real estate, um, you know, you need 500,000 of NOI, annual NOI to have a $10 million, more NOI than you have now, which seems like an insurmountable, crazy goal, can't do it, uh, impossible. So if you break it down into bite-sized chunks, Taken into monthly increments. So that's 40,000 approximately a month of NOI, 500,000 divided by 12, rounding 40,000 a month. 
So you need $40,000 a month of NOI um, to have that five cap and $10 million network, which is still a lot, can't do it, all of that. So if you say, okay, well, if you have a goal of a thousand units, take the 40,000 a month of NOI divided by a thousand units, that's $40 a month across a thousand units. So if you have a thousand, a thousand units and find a way to increase your NOI $40 a month, each unit, you created $10 million of, of network for yourself at five cap, which still is, okay, that's a lot, $40 at a unit. So take, give yourself five years to do it. So take the $40 divided by five, that's $8. So if you bought a thousand units, added five dollars, I'm sorry, $8 of NOI every single month for five years straight, you have $10 million network more than you have today. And so when, when I buy a property, I'm looking for $240 dollars because I know the net outcome of what that'll produce. And the activity may seem trivial and insignificant and neurotic, but those dollars matter. Um, and, and if you know where value is created, that's where your focus goes. And then that influences and informs your activity along that, along that line. So um, hopefully that, I, I really hope that makes sense. And I, I hate to- No, I think- I, th I think you've articulated that well. I've heard you give that explanation before. It's kind of a contrarian view where, you know, it, but maybe not, but I mean, contrarian in the sense that we're supposed to chase 10 cap, not five cap. Like, it, yes, you want a higher cap rate if it's this, if it all else is equal, but all else is, what you're saying is it's not all equal. You get the 10 cap in, you know, rural, rural Missouri, you, you get the five cap in Washington, D.C., they're not equal, right? If you could buy the same, obviously when you try to buy a five cap, you'd like to buy it at a six, but it really be a five, right? So, I mean, I got a park that's, it's a five, but I paid a seven and a half. So I'm like, okay, now I, I came in with upside and then that $8 analysis, you know, it's just going to yield more fruit. So I'm with you on that. And I'm with you on, um, you know, just in general, you know, building, building wealth is, is, is takes more than just a paycheck, right? It's, you gotta, you gotta have a massive paycheck, like a professional athlete or something in order to build wealth through your J-O-B, right? So, I mean, that's how kind of why I started pursuing in rougher deals because I'm like, I can't, I can't quadruple the value of a five cap asset in two to three years. But if I buy a 15 cap, it's possible for me to also 15 cap it. And then if it's also 40% occupied, I can quadruple the, quadruple the value in two or three years, and then I can refinance, and then I have a big chunk of cash, and then I can take that cash and, and invest in stuff that, you know, allows me to, you know, live the lifestyle I want to live. So I think we, however you get there, it's, you know, the tax ban taketh, you know, and how do you, nothing better than real estate combined with cost segregation, combined with accelerated depreciation, combined with being a real, a real estate professional to- yes avoid paying income taxes um, in a legal and strategic manner. And that is the key to wealth. As I tell people, you know, it's, it's not how much you make, it's, it's how much you keep and you keep it by living below your means and by not paying the tax man a penny more than, he, than he's entitled to. Yeah, agreed. I mean, the only way you pay tax on wealth is currently is if you buy or if you sell, you know, that's, that's really what it comes down to. One of those I'd say you control and that's not sell. And that's, that's our model. Um, and then second, I think almost to your, your point, the challenge, I think, um, you know, to your point of kind of value, cash flow versus capital appreciation, what I see is a lot of people leaving the corporate world where their world is cash flow, you know, because that's the check every Friday. So they take a model, a mental construct that hasn't worked for them over here, and they jump to a lily pad and demand the same 
from that new living pattern. Right. They, they haven't changed their view. They want a different outcome. They haven't shifted their view. Um, right. I, I'm not saying that cash flow is a bad thing. It certainly isn't. But if you had to pick wealth or cash flow, if you had to pick one, I would, I would pick wealth. You know, now we don't have to pick one or the other in real estate. Now, right. in our in the difference between 10 cap and five cap, it's how much of this and how much of that. It's a day between amounts, but, um, but anyway, um, no, I, I think you've done great. I've I really enjoyed watching you build your business. And I, I think, I think you, uh, I think the business you built is fantastic. And I think the content you put out is fantastic. So I, I, I commend you. I appreciate it, Ryan. Appreciate you coming on here. This has been fun. Uh, yeah. Where can people reach out to you or how can they find you? Yeah, I'm mean, pretty, pretty easy to get a hold of. Uh, my number is 407-602-7662. And that's uh, my direct line here. And then our website is Elevation Fund. Uh, dot com. All right. Thanks again, Ryan. You bet. Thanks for the time. Yep. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.